Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The economic future look a little bit different to anything we've ever seen before. But to shed light on that, I'm joined by my old mate, Mr. Davis. What is the crack, my man? How are you, Mac? How's your week been? The week has been very good because we announced a new €30,000 award from the Dorky Book yes, Festival. Yes, I saw which that. Which is great, and it's the, actually it's the biggest award in the Irish calendar. You know, you, unique to Irish writers, which is a lovely thing to be able to do. Yeah. Because... You know, the festival's cancelled and it's kind of devastating because you put so much work into it and you, you spend so much time get, trying to get the right people in and making sure that the whole tone is right. And then it's, it's, it's cancelled. But we've decided to replace this year's festival with the Dorky Literary Awards. And this is something that I've really wanted to do since we started the festival, which is to kind of give back. Because sometimes you forget that at the essence are the writers. Yeah. And the writers this year has been a poxy year for writing. Because if you think all the bookshops are closed, festivals are gone, mm. publication dates are changed, there's no launches, there's no buzz. And I mean, writers need a buzz about their work. Of course, yeah. So the, the, the Literary Awards, we, we, we launched them. And again, it, it, we did it with our, our partner, Zurich, who have been very, very generous. And it's, it's a great thing to be able to do. And the shortlist was announced and the award will be given out on the 20th of June, which was the date... We were supposed, to, supposed to do it, yeah, crescendo yeah. the festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so always we'll that do we can't. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll come back, you know, we'll come back stronger next next year and better. But it has been, it's been difficult. So it's a lovely way to kick off this week to be able to actually say to writers, because you forget that most writers make no money, John. Yeah. The vast majority of artists of any sort yeah. in this country and around the world are impoverished. They have no money. 
So to be able to actually identify six writers, established writers, and then six new writers, yeah. and be able to set aside 30,000, which is a huge amount of money, of course. Uh, is a great thing. It's a really good thing. Yeah, so, no, I, I think it's great. I, I suppose, on the flip side, this whole lockdown has been good for the writing process for some people, but you also need to sell it, you as you to, say. I mean, that's the thing, you need to sell the stuff. Well, yeah. it's very interesting you talk about this, because you know we have a weakness for history, John. We do, we do. We do. Right, well, let's go back to the... Black Death. Oh, yes. Right? Let's. Because probably the two greatest books in Italian history are Dante yeah. and Boccaccio. Yeah. So there's a Dante's Inferno, all that sort of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's written just before the Black Death, written in 1320, 22. Black right. Death's in 1340 odd. And yeah. he's describing this world just before the pandemic. But Boccaccio's book, The Decameron, is 10 tales. This is the, the classic of Italian literature written during the plague and it's about kids teenagers and early 20s who escaped the plague in florence it's interesting when you look back at history it was always saying the reasonably wealthy like our friend dominic cummins okay <laughs> yeah. can go to their country house so it's the same in florence in the plague right and boccaccio followed these teenagers and people in their early 20s who went to a farmhouse away from the city to ex escape the plague. Right. And there they started to exchange stories with each other. And what it shows, remember last week we were talking about all these plagues are preceded by periods of an amazing innovation and openness, right? Yeah. So if you look at the Decameron, what I found amazing is the references were to Constantinople, to Cairo, to Babylon, to all these These people were traveling. These mm. people, we, we kind of think the people in the medieval ages weren't traveling. They were traveling, they were exchanging, they were trading. So yes, to come back to your point, there is an example of a classic work <laughs> written explicitly, on, explicitly during a pandemic. And it's the Decameron, it's well worth a, a read because again, remember we were talking about that? This is the beginning of the process that after the Black Death, Italian literature starts yeah. to flourish. Italian question of the world starts to flourish and within a generation you have the Renaissance. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of literature comes out of this specific yeah, period absolutely. and how it's been coloured by this. And, and, and we've definitely got to get an economics big tract out of it called The Great Pandeshin. That's it. Okay, we're going that's to get it. this word in. We're going to get this word in. No, but so that's been the upside of my week. Yeah, and that's great. No, it's all good. It's all good. But anyway, let's move on. Cool. Well, it's again, John, we're back to this idea of the pandition. How do we get out of it? How deep is it going to be? I'll give you one statistic, which is kind of shocking. Everything is happening 12 times faster than ever before. Think about this, right? In the Great Depression, it took one year for the rate of unemployment to go from 4% to 28%. Right. In this downturn, it's taken one month. Yeah. So Jesus. this, it's happening quicker and faster and with more calamitous consequences than ever imagined. But does that, that speed is the thing. But does that mean that it could bounce back as quick? It could bounce back as quick, but it only bounces back if we do the right things now. In the Great Depression, the original approach of the Hoover government, mm. which was articulated by Mellon, the finance secretary, whose people were originally from Tyrone, Okay. Oh, yes, this is the, the bankers. Liquidate, yeah. liquidate, liquidate, he said. Basically, you sell everything. Mm. But the problem is if you sell everything in a depression, you just crystallize losses. That's all you do. Yeah. And what you do is you make things worse. Who are you selling to? So the question, well, that's the thing. 
back to our friend about the cons- consolidation, the big guys who are waiting in the wings. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. If you take the basic idea of economics is your income is my spending and your spending is my income. Yeah. If you're not spending, I have no income. And if I have no income, I'm not spending. Therefore, you have no income. That's the basic idea of macroeconomics. If you sell in a depression, you destroy everybody's income. So the key thing now is to think this is not a conventional downturn. Because a conventional downturn, John, in economic history always is preceded by a period of inflation. So what you get is the economy goes into a boom, economy starts growing, people get very optimistic, people employ lots and lots of people, wages start to rise, costs start to rise, rents start to rise. At a certain stage, those rise in prices produce a situation where lots of companies find it impossible to make any profits because their cost base rises and they retrench then others retrench and we go into a downturn, right? It can be inflation in wages or costs. That's happened in the 1970s. Or it can be inflation in house prices, which happened in this country from 2000 to 2008. And suddenly you end up with the balance sheet completely destroyed of the country and you get a slump, right? This pandemic was not preceded by inflation. So it's a totally different economic issue. So does that mean then that if it's very different to anything else, there's very different solutions. Precisely. So okay. if you think of it, the way I look at it is, what has happened is a bit like economic fallout. Did you, have, did you ever see Chernobyl? Have you seen Chernobyl? I did, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it was okay. great. So yeah. think about what happened in Chernobyl. There's fallout, there's contamination, right? Yeah. You get a massive one-off accident and you get contamination. It certainly wasn't feel-good telly. It wasn't feel, no, it wasn't feel-good telly. It wasn't feel-good telly. And I was watching it on a flight. This sounds like, this sounds very 2019. Yeah. There I was flying <laughs> to the States and I was watching what was that the flight. Like? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, son, will I tell you about transatlantic flying? Anyway, but there's a guy beside me and he was, and I'd watched the whole thing and it, and it was very, very depressing. And he was from Ukraine. This oh, big right. guy he said to me, he said, did you enjoy that? After like five hours of watching right, yeah. the whole thing. And I said, yeah. He said, yes, it's very realistic. I'm from there. And I wow. said to him, stupidly, do you miss it? <laughs> You know, because there's a lot of people, no, but there's a lot of people in the post-Soviet world who do miss... miss nuclear power? No, do you miss a bit of radiation? But anyway, uh, think about the contamination. What did he say? Hang he, on, what did he, he say? He nearly knocked my head off, right? Think before you speak, Max. Well, no, but it's interesting because in places like Croatia, where I spend a lot of time, a lot of people do miss the certainty of the Soviet, the communist, the socialist system. Well, yeah. Lots of people do, you know. And a hell you of a lot of people... be conditioned into anything, but, really. I, but a hell of a lot of people have not thrived since the fall of communism over there, mm. you know. But anyway, that's a different, different yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you think of the radiation, so I, I regard what's happened now as like it's, it's, it's balance sheets have been contaminated, investments have been contaminated, people's dreams have been contaminated, yeah. right? Because all their financial calculations, which are the bedrock of this what I would call this great adventure of the commercial odyssey of going out on your own, have been contaminated by the radiation of COVID. So we have to think, okay, how do we stop this? And this is to your point about thinking unconventionally. You've got to think unconventionally. But the problem with unconventional thinking is it's a really lonely, lonely road. Mm. It's much easier not to bother. And the reason it's not to bother is the enemy of unconventional thinking is not logic or learning or knowledge or the rational debate. The enemy of unconventional thinking 
is the conventional man. And the conventional man is armed with what I would call this oppressive toolkit of well-worn mantras. Mm. You can't do this. You can't do this. How will this be paid for? Who's going to do this, right? So rather than entertain the possibilities that economics affords, the conventional man oppresses the unconventional thinker. And I've always thought in Ireland, for example, if you think unconventionally in in the economic sphere, your ideas go through three phases in Ireland, right? Right. Okay, if you come out and say something unconventional. The first phase is open ridicule, where everyone laughs at you. Yeah. Okay? And I remember, you know... Yeah, you're you're used to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Exactly, I am. (laughs) And the second phase is when your ideas get a little bit of traction, is violent opposition. Right. That the establishment can count on people to do a job on you, to actually oppose you violently. So what happened to you? Did you get a wedgie or something? I got... (laughs) Wedgie. An economic wedgie. An economic, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then the third phase, the best phase, which is the everybody pretends they were on your side all the time phase. Right. right? When the ideas become to fruition. So, so and, and you have to go through these processes. You have to be courageous enough and also maybe mad enough to actually sure. say, to look at the yeah. establishment and say, no, that's not how the world works. So, I mean, John, the interesting thing is it's the oppressive toolkit of these well-worn mantras that destroys unconventional thinking. And J.K. Galbraith, the great American, well, he's actually Canadian economist, said a beautiful thing about conventional thinking and conventional men. And he said, when faced with the choice between changing his mind and finding the proof not to do so, the conventional man always gets busy looking for the proof. Yeah. And it's a a remarkable expression because... If you are conventional and somebody asks you to change your mind, the very act of changing your mind is an affront to everything you stand for. So you double down yeah. on bad ideas and you find the proof and you extract the proof and you say, what about this and what about that? Rather than saying, actually, we've got to think differently. And you stick on a lead suit using the uh, radiation analogy. <laughs> John is on fire today and he's all over the shop. <laughs> so... So one man with the lead suit on is Pascal Donoghue. And he was chatting during the week, talking specifically about the stuff that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Have a listen to this. Let's talk about David McWilliams' idea. What's wrong with his idea since money is so cheap? That money may be cheap now, but it won't be as cheap as it is now forever. And the precise difficulty, if you just allow me to make the point with the argument that has been made, is that it is, yes, you're right, uh, very attractive to borrow money at the moment. But at the end point of that debt, we either repay it back or refinance it. And we should have no reason to believe that the very low interest rates now will continue into the future. So part of what David and others advocate, we're already doing. So, for example, we're already uh, indicating for this year we will have a deficit of between 23 and 30 billion euro. So the level of borrowing uh, that many are calling on me to do is now being done. That's why, for example, we have a wage subsidy scheme in place. But at a point in time, we will need to repay back that debt and almost certainly at a higher interest rate. And the problem at that point is if the interest rate goes up, and for example, that interest rate is going up on hundreds of billions of deaths which a country owns, 
the cost of the interest rate, even going up infinitesimally, costs a huge amount of money then. And the kind of refinancing that many are talking about doing, we've already done. So the average rate, uh, interest rate on our national debt has gone from 4% to 2%. It's taken down our interest payments from 7.5 billion euro per year to 4 billion euro per year. So that refinancing has happened in recent years. And we're already borrowing a lot of money and indeed will continue to do so. But that money at a point in time will either have to be repaid back or borrowed again. And that's when the catch in the argument comes in. And the thesis that David is putting forward regarding money being cheap now is correct. He's acknowledging what is happening in the financial markets. But my key point is, is it would take, uh, would take a finance minister with no knowledge at all of history, even recent history, to assume those interest rates will continue indefinitely. And at the point they go up, we need to ensure we're not looking to re-borrow tens of billions of euros all over again. Because quite quickly, that would begin to affect the money that we have to spend on our hospitals, our schools, our wages and on our taxes. So, Mark, what's your, what's what's your take, take on that one? Uh, John, for many years now, I regard it as a badge of honour. It's, it's an <laughs> occupational hazard to be hung out to dry in public by the finance minister of the country. Right. No, but it's an interesting thing. If you, There's a great RAF expression from the Second World War, right. which is that... You only take the flack when you're over the target. Nice. Think about that. Nice. You only attract incoming fire from the establishment mm. when they know what you're saying is over the target. Yeah. It's actually located. So look at what we're talking about here. We're talking about an economy that is toxic now because of this foundation. So we know what we have to do. You've got to borrow and not worry about repaying. Yeah. Because you've got to worry about what's in front of you. Don't worry about what happens next year, the year after, the year after. Martin Luther King coined a great expression, which was the extreme urgency of now. Right. Now is urgent. Yeah. Tomorrow can look after itself. We can come back to that. So now is urgent. Why? Because we've got 30% unemployment. Every single small business is technically bankrupt in this country. Yeah. If you look at a small business, take a restaurant, right? Restaurants been trading away. Yeah. Right. Trading away, doing their stuff, suddenly, boom, everything stops. Now, if you look at the economy like a living organism, what you'll see is we're completely interdependent. That the economy is a complex adaptive system. Yeah. That everything's related to each other. Everybody's interconnected. Your buying is my selling. Your income is my income. Yeah. Your spending is my income. Everything's interrelated. So when the economy is going well, and it was going well up until the yeah. 10th of March, right? Take a restaurant. The restaurant's doing well. The turnover's going up. He's got 20 or 30 employees. They're paying their VAT. They're paying their taxes. The tables are turning. Electricians who have to come in to do the lights are doing well. There's a plumber getting well yeah, paid. Yeah, yeah. There's a cleaner getting paid. Those cleaners and plumbers, electricians, they're also spending money. So everything's yeah, all going well. Yeah, so it ripples well. out. You know, the, 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 the customers are loyal. They're all Everyone's in good form, right? Mm. So that's a living organism. It's like, it's, imagine it like it's alive, right? Mm. And then you stop it. You stop it. Every single relationship then is severed with the customer, with the employer, with an investor who might have invested, yep. with the supplier. Suddenly the plumber and electrician who were doing work, they're gone too. So they're not buying. The cleaner's gone. She's not buying. He's not buying, right? The organism has stopped. It's lifeless. 
That is the way to look at the economy, that everything is related to each other, rather than look at it as some sort of mechanistic machine where you pull this lever hydraulically and something else happens, right? So then let's look at what Pascal Dunham was saying. And by the way, John, I actually think he's a really fine man. I think he's a nice guy. He's a very literary guy. He's very, very well read. Sure. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, very, yeah. it's very important it's to have not a personal thing. people of, who are civilized and civil people in positions of power. Mm. So in many ways, I think he's a, he's a very fine man. However, he has revealed that he doesn't understand economics. Ooh, okay. And that's kind of worrying for me. Explain that one to me. So the way in which he argues, and it's not him, he's been fed this by the Department of Finance, mm. is, and his argument is, if we borrow today, what happens when interest rates go to 5%? Legitimate question. Yeah. But what was very revealing to me about what the minister said was a complete lack of understanding about how the economy actually operates. Yeah. Right? That interest rates don't move on their own. Interest rates are a function and a consequence of something else. Why? Because the rate of interest is only the price of money. Yeah. So the price of money will only be rising if the economy is booming and the demand for money is huge. And if the economy is booming, you've loads of revenue to pay the debts, which is exactly what happened in this country from about 2013 to 2020. So debt right. to income ratios in Ireland collapsed because the economy was booming. So it was loads of money. Right. right. Or interest rates will rise if the rate of inflation is rising. But if the rate of inflation is rising, you're inflating away the debt. So the cost of the debt that you incurred in the deflationary period is inflated away in the inflationary period. A good example of this is the way people will have bought houses. If you talk to older people who bought houses in Ireland in the late 60s and early 70s, by the time the 80s came around, because we had so much inflation in the 70s, the actual cost of that debt was very modest for them. So can I just ask you then, are you saying that we need inflation now? We, well, absolutely. We, you know, we would be so lucky if we had 5 or 6% inflation in the future. And the reason is the following. Look at the Second World War. The Second World War, America and Britain yeah. ended the Second World War with enormous public debt because basically in the Second World War, what happened was what I think should happen now mm. is the government takes over the central bank and says, print the money yeah. because we're fighting this enemy. Yeah. And this enemy is much bigger than you're worrying about inflation, yeah. right? And the central bank said, well, okay. So basically, it was fiscal and monetary policy became one and the same thing in the yeah. Second World War. But the consequence of that is you ended the war with lots of debt. So how did the world economy in the 1950s and the 1960s not succumb to the Pascal Donoghue fear right. of high interest rates? What they did was they allowed inflation to run about 5 or 6% all through the 50s. Right. And suddenly it was that- controlled inflation. It was controlled inflation. It was basically Keynesian targeting of inflation. Right. And they had a thing called financial repression, John. Financial repression is when you insist on certain corporations buying government debt. Okay. A way of doing that is, for example, capital controls. So if you've got capital controls in a country, so capital controls in a country are basically you say, you cannot take money out of this country or you cannot take X amount of money out of this country. So you trap the pool of savings in your own country. And then that pool of savings goes to pay off various things. And so what usually happens then is large corporations, like an insurance company, insurance insurance companies have long, long, long risks. If you're an insurance company, you've got this very, very, very long risk profile that you have to be able to cover in your balance sheet. So the best way for an insurance company to cover risk of having to pay out 
is to buy an asset that pays every year and is very long-term. Okay. And what is that asset? A long-term government bond or even a, a perpetual, which I talk about, that you actually have no capital payment, it's only interest payments. Right. But the point is you can do all these things if you think unconventionally. And unconventional thinking doesn't demand modern thinking. It can be very old thinking. Yeah. It can be very ancient thinking. It can say, let's go back to the 50s, let's go back, you know. And what you're trying to do, and this is the key, the most responsible thing to do right now is to save the economy. Yeah. And you face the challenge that is in front of you today. The extreme urgency of now has to be the only thing that counts. Because if you allow the economy to collapse, you'll default on the debt anyway because yeah. you'll have no income. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. see what I mean? Absolutely. And this freaks me out. When I listen to a, a finance minister, talking about interest rates rising as if they rise on their own, as if they're like yeah. a ghost. You know, as if it's like... A, a, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, man, go back to school. So given that you're saying that inflation is a good thing, let's just go back to last week, because last week you were talking about relationship capitalism and the fact that the game with China is pretty much up. Yeah. So we're going to shorten our supply chains, is the way you yeah. put it, which makes perfect sense. But that in itself will give rise, surely, to rising prices. Yes, it and will. And therefore, inflation. It will. It will. So, so, we're, so we're, we're heading for an inflationary period, well, possibly. What we're doing is we're looking down the barrel of massive deflation right now. Yeah. Right now. And the reason is that the economy has stopped and unemployment is incredibly high and debts need to be paid and they will be unwound. So what we're looking at is a period of deflation right now. Yeah. And the solution to deflation is inflation. Of course, yeah. But people don't seem that to sense that because a whole generation of economists in particular are schooled in the traumatic legacy of the 1970s where strong inflation undermined economies, undermined economic systems, yeah. brought to the end this idea of the Keynesian compromise, which you can talk about maybe at some other stage. But anyway... And they were schooled, like myself, as central bankers. And oh, when did I, you work in the central bank? Once or twice, <laughs> yeah. And once, once you went to those places, you were told that the single most disastrous thing that can occur in a country is inflation. And it came largely from the teaching of Milton Friedman. Mm. But they omitted to say something else about Friedman. It was very selective that Friedman's great work was the monetary history of the United States, which located the Great Depression in deflation, not inflation. What he said was what happened in the Great Depression was America was full of very small banks. It's quite interesting. They're called unit banks. And they were small. Like The amazing thing is in the United States in the early 19th century, so right. 1805, 1806, yeah. every citizen had the right to set up their own bank oh, really? and to issue their own currency. Oh, it's mad! Be so great, it was a right. So it was a right to bear arms and have your own currency, like yeah. the John stick Davis. Your, the John stick Davis your face on a note. Yeah, no, it's true. And there were competing currencies and all this mad stuff going on, right? So our friend Friedman identified with an amazing book with another economist called Anna Schwartz mm. that what actually happened in the Great Depression is these small banks. There was a run on the banks. People thought the banks didn't have money. So what the bank started to do is they started to hoard money. Right. To say, we have the money, but you're not getting it. And this, of course, made the panic worse. So what happened was, as the banks hoarded money, the available supply of money 
in the economy collapsed, right? Because right. it was all being hoarded. And the central bank, rather than print money, okay, which is what I talk about all the time, mm. decided to go back to conventional thinking and decided, oh, we can't print money because we think like Pascal don't know who, because we'll have to pay it all back. And what happens is if you don't print money when money is disappearing, you get a Great Depression, right? So that was Friedman's great right. insight. Now, back to the inflation idea. It strikes me that we will go through deflation and then let's project out a year or two yeah. or three. What is the long-term consequence of these policies? The long-term consequence of the truncated supply chain is that trust will be biased or jaundiced over price. And by that, I mean that people will do business with people they trust yeah. rather than just the guy who comes and knocks on the door and says, here's the cheapest product, yeah. okay? So therefore, you're right. So the price of lots and lots of supply chains will rise, stuff in the supply chain, okay? Now, the question then is, what does that do if we enter into a period of low but reasonably vibrant inflation, 5 6 7% per yeah. year, then that inflates away all the debts. Right, so it's a, so it's, it's a win. But, but, we, but we need to get our head away from this idea that inflation is everywhere and always a bad thing. That's the first thing. Right. The second thing then, John, is can you just control it at 7 or 8%? But this that's is the, the thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, does inflation have an incipient internal mechanism, yeah. right, which is... Well, you don't want to end up at 15% like we did in the late 70s. Yeah, or, or like Argentina. Yes, of course. Yeah, you know, so, so that comes back to judicious central banking. This is why I keep coming back to that. The central bankers are still the most important people in the game. Where is Magaluf? He's in Magaluf, actually. <laughs> He's actually having Where is he? five. Magaluf is, I believe, the head of the Irish Central Bank is in Greece. Is he? I have been told that. You can't verify it, okay. but I've been told he's what, in Greece. What, for the last two months? For the last two months, right? The mad. Holy right. shit. But let's, then, I'm just, I'm not just okay, talking okay, about okay. him. Let's talk about in general, right? Now, there is a fear that all this printing of money, all this issuing of debt will lead to hyperinflation. Yeah. This has been a fear for a long time among certain people. After 2008, there was a fear that there would be hyperinflation because the, the Fed was printing lots of money. There wasn't, right? And the fear is real as long as you feel that the central bank doesn't have the tools at its disposal. So the really... Like a shocking example of this was what happened in the Americas in the late 19, late 17th century, 18th mm. century. You know that American expression, it's not worth a continental? Yeah. Have you heard that expression? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Wouldn't give a continental. Exactly. But you know what a continental was? A continental was the currency of the revolution, right? What do you so, mean? So uh, George Washington and all those fellas, right? Yeah, yeah, Hamilton yeah. and yeah. Payne and all those fellas, yeah. they decided to have a war against the Brits. Yes. But they would no money. Think about it, right? You okay. need money to fight a war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why were they fighting a war? Because they they didn't want to pay taxes. Because the Brits were hemorrhaging to the money. Queen. Exactly, to the king, King George. Oh, oh yeah, of course. They were hemorrhaging money out of the United States, right? Yeah. Out of America. And the patriots in America said, hold on a second. This is not right. We're giving you loads of our tax money and you're giving us nothing. Yeah. So he said, we're going it's to fight enough. you. Yeah. But at the time, nobody thought that these guys would beat the British Empire. So nobody was prepared to lend the revolutionaries money to fight the war. So what did they did? The Continental Congress 
which right. was the first American government per se, right? right? Almost in absentia, set up a paper currency called the Continental. Right. And the Continental they used to print to fight the war. But oh. the problem was it wasn't backed by anything. I was going to say, what, what was it backed by? It wasn't nothing. stuck to gold nothing, or nothing. silver. Or they anything. had no gold, right? Yeah. They got a small amount of gold lent to them by the French because the French were always trying to lend to anybody who pissed off the English, <laughs> which is why they ended up in Killala. You know, in the year of the French for yes, us, right? Yes. So that was their... That was their checkbook diplomacy at the time. Now the right. Chinese have this checkbook diplomacy yeah, yeah, that they yeah. pay people. The French were always the same carry-on, right? <laughs> to annoy the Brits, right? So they lent a little bit to the Yanks, but not many. So the Yanks fought the war in a period of hyperinflation. It's quite right. interesting. And after the war, of course, the Continentals, the value of the Continental fell to 1% of its face value. Wow. And that is why you have the expression, it's not worth a Continental. I wouldn't give a continent. I wouldn't give a continent, right? And right, that's, that's okay. That's really the hyperinflation that you could fear if the central bank had no tools to deal with taking money out and whatever. But it has, right? Yeah. So what you've got to do is, ironically, John, you've got to trust your institutions in a, in a situation like this, yeah. right? To come back to it, unless we put front and center the saving of the economy. And unless we face the enemy of the pandeshin, this great pandeshin, and identify this is our problem now, mm. and stop worrying about what's going to happen in five or six years, because as I said, if interest rates go up, it's a function of the fact that the economy is booming. Yeah. So it's not a problem. Yeah. Take examples like the Continental and understand that that was a very primitive finance system. It was very different to the one we have now. And not fear that we will have this hyperinflation that's where you begin to win the battle against the pandeshin. And winning the battle against the pandeshin is all that's on the cards right now. So back at the end of Feb, early March, we spoke about on this podcast, we spoke about putting the economy into, into deep freeze. Yeah, Just stick it on put hold. Sleep, put them to sleep. Yeah, because the economy was in pretty good shape then. So yeah. freeze it, it should bounce back in pretty good shape. Is that still the scenario, do you think? I think that should still be the scenario. There's a thing in economics called scarring, which is the long-term ramifications of a traumatic event. Right, okay. okay. And so it's very hard to, to see this not scarring people's psyche, particularly if you think the economy is essentially is a, is a social animal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you say social distancing, well, you're destroying the animal in a way. So the economy is a social animal. You know, it's very chatty. I've always thought of, if you visualize the economy, it's the chatty kid in the class. That's the economy, chatty, yeah. chatty, 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 right? So obviously there's going to be long-term ramifications for hospitality, for anything retail. Travel. Certainly for travel, right? Yeah. And these are big chunks of the economy. But technically, it should come back as long as you make sure that your bankruptcies don't go through the roof, which is why I think we've got to change our bankruptcy law which is why we've got to make sure the companies that have run out of cash are not identified as trading recklessly, which is a criminal offence. Yeah. In fact, the Brits have moved some way last week to try and to actually ease up their bankruptcy laws. Oh, the Brits right, are okay. interested. The Brits are, are ahead of everybody in economics. They're behind in terms of the virus. Yeah. But they're miles ahead in economics. It's quite interesting. Wow. Yeah. And, and well, of course, you don't hear that now because the bias in, in Ireland is always so anti-British. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Particularly since Brexit, because they've annoyed us, right? <laughs> but actually, if you look at what they're doing, it's quite interesting. They're they're being quite courageous and they're they're deploying their their armory, I think, very effectively or 
quite effectively. But crucial to all this is to make sure the Irish banking system doesn't foreclose on loans. The way in which you do that is you've got to make sure the Irish banking system avails of the ECB's zero financing. We're right back to the place at the start. Yeah. The Irish banking system, if they reprice our loan book at zero, if they use what the ECB called the TTLRO, right, to reprice the loan book. At the yeah. moment, the ECB is saying, you can just price new loans, maybe not own loans, but I think that's going to change and they're going to go back to old loans. Oh, well. right, okay. Then what the banks can do is they can say, look, John, if you owe me 20 grand, you're a small business, I can forget about that for a while. Why? Because I'm refinancing all your loans at zero and I don't need to make money off you. Right. What they'll have to say then to depositors is that you too will get no interest on your savings. Right. And this needs to be a national conversation we have because then you go back to this idea of the economy being asleep. Then the economy can sleep soundly. But what keeps you awake at night, and this is something that when you look at advisors and people who talk about economics, far too many of them are university professors and public servants. Yeah. So they've never had to worry about their wage. They've never had to worry about paying a bill. They've never had to worry about paying VAT never have to worry about paying rent. They never have to worry, is the product working? Does it work in the market? Yeah, yeah, What's my yeah, competitor yeah. doing? Yeah. Right? These are the things that keep you awake at night. When you wake up at 4 a.m., if you're in the private sector, if you've got your own little business, that stuff is going on in your head, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's the stuff that actually needs to be discussed right now. But if you have ministers and governments who are advised by people whose wage is going to come irrespective of whether they succeed or not, and irrespective of whether they're right or not, you know? Mm. This is the really interesting thing in Ireland. Like, you know, if you look at the great crash in Ireland, the property boom, 99% of the economic profession said there was going to be a soft landing. Yeah. Not one of them have paid for that advice or that stance, right? So my sense is that we'd be better off being advised right now by small business people who understand what Claire is going through, Hundreds of thousands Absolutely, of people. Going, yeah. And I come back to our point. Half of Irish people are employed by companies that have less than 50 employees. That's the heart of the place. So, and we need to understand that. So why doesn't the likes of IBEC step up to the plate? Because IBEC are large corporations. You know, IBEC, right. is, I, IBEC is, the, is, 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 is an umbrella organization for businesses that can afford to be members of IBEC. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm not saying they're not doing a good job, and I, I think they probably are. But the urgency with which the anxiety of small businesses needs to be addressed seems to me to be lacking. And I locate the reason for that in one, conventional thinking, and two, a view of the economy, which looks at the economy as a mechanistic machine rather than this living, breathing interdependent organism that, as far as I'm concerned, is a much better way of looking at things. So hang on a second, Macker. You know, within the next month, we are going to have a new government. Yeah. Which, in turn, might have a new finance minister. So he's out. Is this a new opportunity? You right? might be right. I mean, Pascal Donus might be on his way out. I mean, the way in which coalitions work is you take the five big jobs... And you say, I want them all. And then the other fellow says, no, I want them, la, yeah. la, la. So you've got the Greens in if they stop scrapping about amongst themselves, right? Yeah. So let's assume the Greens realise there's a bigger gig going on, right? The Greens will want a big job. 
Yeah, right? of course. So yeah. one of the big jobs was the foreign minister, finance minister. You don't really want to be the health minister in no. this thing, right? No, that's okay. a poison chalice. You want to be in the environment minister, right? But if you think of transport minister, these are big ones, right? Yeah. So Education. Education. That's a bit of a poison chalice so, at the minute. Yeah, absolutely. So you think there's a very, very good chance that Mio Martin comes in and he says, look, I've got the top gig and my man is a fella called, uh, oh, what's his name? McGrath, Michael McGrath. Yeah. He gets the job. Pascal gets shunted onto something else. Leo Varadkar becomes Tornishta and foreign minister because that's a sort of a, it's a prestige position. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So you could be right. There could be a whole host of new faces in two or three weeks' time. But and that, maybe, that... maybe, maybe, maybe somebody says, hang about. That's the English thing. Hang about. I don't know. I don't know. No, somebody says, oh, you know, let's change tack. Let's change. Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity for new thinking. Well, I think it could be. It could be. You know, there's a lot of people who be very skeptical and say, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, new thinking. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it's all the same, yeah. You know, um, but equally, equally, lots and lots of politicians want to. What's very interesting is many politicians who end up being these dominant, amazing crisis politicians who emerge were really second and third rate people before it and they grew into the crisis, right? I mean, the greatest one is FDR. Nobody would have actually yeah. said that Franklin Roosevelt was going to be the president he was. Yeah. But he was, you know? And For a point. you never know what's going to happen. Politics is very strange and people who were nondescript in opposition become emperors in power. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As you know, every week we have our Schumpeter slot, and this is to celebrate businesses that have looked the virus in the eye and said, you know what, we're going to change and we're going to try and figure a way around this. And... Today, we're going to go down to Cork to talk to Claire Condon. Claire Condon is of the Good Day Delhi in Cork. Claire, how are you? 
I'm fantastic. Thank you. What I love about the fact is that you are a recovering economist that left yeah, exactly. the weird trade and got into a proper business. Tell me about that before we talk about the business. Oh, well, uh, yeah. So I, in college, studied commerce. I majored in economics, went on to do uh, my master's in kind of food systems. So we went to Kenya and studied dairy and livestock chains. I then went on to work in kind of supply chain design in Dell. was offered a job in Singapore when I was in Singapore, but decided to work in Cork. And then I moved to New Zealand, worked first as an economist with government on setting the minimum price for alcohol. Wow. Uh, but then Don't tell John working... about that. That'll kill him. He's been looking for uh, a minimum price for booze for many years. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was just policy they were working on at the time and then moved into the Ministry for the Environment over there and worked in environmental eco- economics, which I absolutely adore, just applying economics, combining it with the environment and looking at ways to value natural resources when looking at policy decisions that have an impact on agriculture and industry, but also possibly have a benefit in terms of the non-market value that we have of Please, Claire, listen, I tell you, we might have you on to discuss uh, environmental economics because obviously the the virus shifts everyone's thinking. But let's talk about the Good Day Deli. When did you set it up? What happened? So Good Good Day Deli is two years old. We're a garden cafe in the gorgeous gardens of Nanonagel Place, surrounded by nature and overlooking Cork City. And we're a sustainable foods deli serving a mix of local, seasonal, organic and fair trade food with an absolute commitment to sustainability in our food chain. From the production through the preparation, waste management of food, we serve brunch and lunch six days a week and we were thriving and packed pre-COVID. You, you were flying, were you? We were flying it. We really were. Like a really busy spot. Really loved what we do. And related to the environmental economics, our business is underpinned by an ethos of sustainability. Our decision making isn't purely driven by profits. We also look at the, the economic, environmental, social and cultural costs and benefits of our decision making. The idea around entrepreneurship and the triple bottom line considering people, planet and profit. So that's what underpins all of our wow. thinking and decision making. Yeah. Tell me now, so you're, you're sitting there, you're flying, you have your business model, you're respecting the planet, you're respecting the, the food chains, you're flying along and then the 15th of March, it all stops. Yeah. And tell me, what did you do? What have you, what have you, to use that, we don't like to use that word to pivot, but we will use it. Yeah, which we, I mean, we did, but like, yeah. So the first couple of weeks were spent just kind of sorting out the business, sorting out our team, making sure our team were looked after. There was then a little bit of kind of fear factor going, okay, what does this all mean? And we're, we're of a growth mindset anyway, you know, always changing. We're only two years old. We've been doing lots with it in that two years. Like I didn't mention how we, it's both a cafe, but it's also a platform for sharing information. We run, you know, events, we run nature talks. We, you know, have free educational talks regularly in the cafe as well. When this is all over, we're going to come down and we're going to broadcast from your place. Oh, okay. do, please. We'll Absolutely. definitely do that. I would, ab- definitely, I would love that. No, it would definitely be amazing. That because that's the, Thank sort of, you. that's no, but it's the sort of thing as well that, that, that I think that cafes, we have to rethink, like, what are we offering people? You know, is, we're offering yeah. people an experience. Nothing. So tell me exactly what you're doing right now to get over it. Oh, yeah. Well, we would be delighted to welcome you there. But so, yeah, we basically adapted quite quickly and we're now offering a ready-to-eat delicious picnic delivered to your door. So it's pretty much a delicious box beautifully presented in compostable packaging uh, full of our Good Day Deli kind of delicatessen treats that's delivered to your door in our newly kind of branded electric van. So a very sustainable offering. An electric van, no less. Yeah, Fantastic. we got an electric van. And um, so the box is beautiful. It's got a, a bottle of natural organic biodynamic wine from Le Caveau. It's got cheese. It's all about supporting Irish in this box. Irish producers or Irish um, suppliers. It's got cheeses from Hegarty's, uh, cheddar cheese from Cork, from McCroom Buffalo, 
uh, all sorts of fruits from Bushby strawberries and Belagula apple who are based in ovens well, where you're... Uh, well, my mum's from ovens. My granny, my granny is from McCroom, so you're hitting all the right oh, spots there, you know. This yeah, is very I grew up in McCroom. Oh my yeah. God. We have to talk yeah. about the O'Leary's from McCroom and this tribe and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Do you know nice. what? <laughs> we can talk about that. A, another first. podcast. Another podcast, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, okay, well, listen, and, and how are things going? Is it... Have you turned things, things around? Things are going great. It's nowhere near what we were doing before, but, you know, we're delighted. We're reconnected with some of our team. We're reconnected with our customers. We're reconnected with our suppliers. That's a huge benefit. We've been doing it now for five weeks. It was the kind of a growth pattern. We kind of peaked out after week three, then a lot of new entrants entered the market and all that. But we have a very steady demand now, but we've just launched two new products this week as well. So we're really excited about those for the June weekend. Okay, Claire, so we've got June weekend coming up, right? If people want to find you, where do they find you? So gooddaydelhi.ie forward slash box. That's the quickest, fastest way to get to learn more about what we're doing. We're also online on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Good Day Delhi. It's as simple as that. Claire, listen, best of luck with everything. Delighted to have you on this week. And we'll talk to you soon when we come down to you. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, Claire, see ya. So we're off on a day trip to Cork. Woo! Telling you, telling you, back to see my cousins. I've yeah, you, I have these core cousins, right? As you know, you've known them for years. And I remember years ago, if I'd be on the late late, yeah. and I'd be doing my stuff, and I'd talking be, to the big man, yeah, talking to the big man on the telly, right? <laughs> and all the cousins would be watching down in Cork, right? And the mammy be watching, everybody mm-hmm. watching, right? And you know, normally it's funny after you do TV, there's a little sort of free song of was it any good? Blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, people would text. Always my mother would say, "Well, I'm not sure you looked very well." But I usually wait after you about, fix your hair. Yeah, about after about five minutes, all I get was a text, and all I would say, and it was Langor, <laughs> and that was my Cork cousins <laughs> telling me I'm in Langor. <laughs> so good. I am happy to go back to Langerland. Happy to happy to go down there. Exactly. Yeah, she was great. I'm looking no, forward to that. No, it's That'd really good. good, and it's a good story as well. By the way, Mark, we were talking last week about this kind of scrap between Germany and the. German Constitutional Court and all the rest. Something's been happening. Well, Tell us about it, because I, I don't quite get it. Yeah, that's the, the red hats, as I call them. The red hats. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, basically, Angela Merkel just slapped them around the head with a wet fish this week, right? Good for her. And she said, look, we're going to mutualise bonds. We're going to issue new bonds. They're going to be 500 billion. Ourselves and France are proposing them. And they're going to be bonds of the European Union. So what she basically said is, you know what? German taxpayers are going to pay for Spanish and Italian welfare bills to a small extent. But the principle is enormous because what she's basically said is to the those courts, look, you guys are fighting last year's battle. What I call them is Deutschmark jihadis. Yeah. That they're they're obsessive. They're fighting a jihad on the part of a currency that no longer exists. Right. Okay. And Mrs. Merkel, who always sees so clearly, you know, she's the real leader. Yeah. All right. She said, look, we have a pandeshin. We have German companies and French companies going to the wall. We have a serious existential threat to the European Union. The European Union is our fundamental foreign and domestic policy. Yeah. So you know what? Have your squabble about the Deutschmark, but frankly, I'm getting on with the business of running the place. So it's always the case with Mrs. Merkel, you know. For so long, Angela Merkel kept these Deutschmark jihadis on a very tight leash in Germany. Right. For so long, she allowed the ECB, her blessings, it's, it's not, these things aren't in the legislation. They're just, yeah. you, you know she has your back. She said, to the dra- she said to Draghi, go on, save the euro, just do it, right? Don't worry about these right. jihadis. 
and now she's doing it again. But that gave rise to the AFD or gave well, him some that, that further gave, interest. Well, again, and, and this is interesting, she is really angry. There's, there's, remember we talked about these Ordo liberals yeah. in Germany. She is really angry at them because they weaponized the currency and politicized it to such an extent that they created a political party to defend the Deutschmark. Right. But that political party not only didn't defend the Deutschmark, which was already gone, but it actually facilitated an anti-immigrant party. And if Mrs. Merkel has done anything, it's been pro-immigration, because yeah. she's the one who yeah, let yeah, all the immigrants yeah. in. And secondly, she doesn't want to be fighting the CDU, her party, don't want to be fighting the AFD in Saxony and Brandenburg, where they're strong. So she's doubly pissed off with the Ordo liberals. And she's basically said, you're a bunch of eccentrics. You're yesterday's <laughs> men. Fuck off. I'm going this way. Right. And what's the upshot, do you think, that'll be? That'll make look, it... There will be a compromise and they'll be shouting and roaring in Germany. But you've got to understand that this is like being taken over by the UCD economics department, right? <laughs> okay. Think about it. Like, you know, and the UCD economics department go to the Supreme Court and say, I don't like Leo Varadkar. And the Supreme Court says, so what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or I want to bring back... Yeah, the, and, yeah. I want to bring back the Irish punt. That's what they've kind of said, right? right? And they say, yeah, and the story. Now, obviously, it's a much... It, there's, there's lots of but straws. But is it the beginning? It's the beginning. And Merkel has basically said, look, Germany's future lies at the heart of Europe. We are going to lead. And for so long, Germany has never given itself the permission to lead nor has, has been given the permission to lead by other people. And now Macron and Merkel have come together. And basically the way the European Union works is when France and Germany want something to happen, it happens. How are you doing there? How's the lockdown going for you? Why don't you use it usefully to learn economics with me? Let's learn it together. What I have is the Trinity MBA course that I give. This course is largely based on that course. It's called Global Economics, getting your head around how the economy works. So have a listen. The intro is free on Patreon. If you like it, join up. There are thousands of us doing it now. Let's do it together. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.